Well, good morning. My name is Andrew, and uh, it's good to see all of you. Um, I'm a little worried. It's been such a beautiful morning already so far. I feel like it can only go downhill at this point. Um, But let's pray that that's not true. Father, we do ask uh, in your mercy, open your word to us. Uh, Make your people receptive uh, to what you have to say, and uh, bless our time together as a family of faith. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, if you've been here the last few weeks or so, we've been talking a lot about, in the book of Hebrews, about uh, Christian endurance, is one way of putting it, Christian endurance, Christian perseverance, metaphors like stay the course and make straight paths and finish the race and other metaphors that kind of make you sound tired when you, when you first hear them. Um, and I don't know about you, but it, it kind of brought me back to my own high school days when I still played sports. Um, yeah, I don't anymore. That was the joke. But um, I, I was a cross-country runner in, in high school. And uh, the people on that team, I've, I've thought about them, the best runners on that team. And I've, I've thought, what a tangible picture in my mind they are of what the author of Hebrews has been saying we need to do to endure as Christians in our faith. The single-minded focus on the end goal and the intentional pacing and the pain endurance uh, that a lot of those runners had. And of course, I, I mean, I joined the team because the girl I liked was on the team. Um, I didn't have any of those things. But um, what I did learn uh, in the midst of all of that early on was that starting a race when you're running is relatively easy, uh, but finishing the race, staying with it, that's the hard part. And in a sense, this is one of the primary lessons of the book of Hebrews. Uh, becoming a, a Christian was, was hard for some of us, I'm sure, but ask anyone, it's, it's nothing compared to staying a Christian. <laughs> staying a Christian is difficult. We need constant reminders that it's worth it, that following Jesus is truer and better than all the stuff we see everyone else doing. We need constant instruction on how to endure. And for the last two weeks, uh, that's what we've been learning. We've learned that it takes first a certain kind of inner resolve, an individual choice to endure. It's nothing, it's a, we, we, each of us individually is the, the way the author put it, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, each one of us. At the same time, we learned last week that God is also working in our lives to help us endure. And we need to respond rightly to his activity in our lives, which the author called God's discipline. And this passage that we just read this morning teaches us a third and, and final kind of big idea about Christian endurance. It takes a personal commitment, it takes God's divine activity in our lives, and it takes a church. It takes a community of people for me to endure as a Christian. You see, the author of Hebrews knows that even the strongest of us, even the strongest of us, are just a few bad decisions. We are just a few difficult circumstances away from abandoning him. Throughout Hebrews, the author warns us whether we feel in danger or not, that we are all, even the strongest of us, the most mature, the most faithful, the best runners here, are this close to throwing it all away at any given moment. We're all capable of doing that. And he wants us to remember that one of the most powerful antidotes to that, to growing numb toward Jesus, to returning to a lifestyle we know is wrong, is not just my faith. It's not just my faith. If I'm going to make it, I need, I need more than my faith. I need your faith. All of you, I, I need your faith. I'm convinced by scripture and by experience that one of the primary differences between the person who makes it and the person who doesn't is the quality of relationships around them. I need your faith 
if I'm going to make it. And you need mine. And this is true, guys, this is true for all ages. Students and children, did you know that studies show that one of the primary reasons that college-bound young people keep the faith while they're in school is that they are part of a web of healthy relationships in a church with people who are not their parents. It's one of the primary uh, catalysts for, for faith. It's one of the reasons we've said over and over again that we want students in here for church on Sunday mornings. It's why we want adults serving and volunteering with young people whenever they can. It's why we give Bibles to fifth graders like we did this morning. That's why we recognize graduating seniors. It's not students and children. It's not because you guys are the church of tomorrow. You're the church of right now. Right now. Your faith matters. It doesn't matter how old you are. It does not matter how long you've been a Christian. I need your faith. I need it. And here's essentially how the author summarizes this idea. If you, if you haven't yet, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And look at verse 15 of chapter 12. The author says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Which is another way of saying to this church, it is your responsibility, church, to cultivate and protect not only your own faith, but the faith of those around you. It is your job that no one drifts, that no one loses the race, that no one quits. Not just your pastor's job, not just the elder's job, not just the parent's job, not just for people you like, not just for your own benefit, but the people sitting around you now, the people in your community group, the people that you serve with, they need your faith just as much as they need their own. And frankly, I think this is one of the more difficult things for our time and place because many of us come to church with the expectation that the primary reason that we're here, even now, is for us. Sure, it's great to see friends. If you have them, it's a bonus if you find a fun place to volunteer, but we basically show up to apply a sermon to me, to sing music that I like, and to strengthen my faith for the week. And that's not all wrong, but it's not all right either. What would our church look like if one of the main reasons we showed up to church, to community group, to service, was for the people around us and the families next to us? What if we took this command as seriously as it's given here, to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God? And I don't think we're there yet. I don't think I'm there yet. But man, I want to go to that church. <laughs> and you probably do too. And even if you're not a Christian, a group of people who love each other like that, it sounds really nice, doesn't it? So how do we do it? Where would we start? Well, the author basically tells us, he gives us two things. Two specific things that my faith needs from yours so that we can make it for the long haul. And here's, here's where we're going. Here's what the author says. He says, I need your faith to fight for my faith. And I need your faith to watch out for my faith. I need you to fight for my faith, and I need you to watch out for it. And we'll, I'll explain more what we mean by those as we go on. So first, I need your faith to fight for mine. And I look at verse 14 of chapter 12. He starts off here, Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now this word strive uh, at the beginning is, is more physical and violent than it actually sounds in English, strive. Uh, it's actually used elsewhere in, in the context of persecution. Uh, and the idea behind this word is chasing something down with everything you've got. That's why I like the word fight. We need to fight for each other's faith. We have to fight. And specifically, we, the, the first big idea in that sentence is we need to fight for peace. Fight for peace. 
And it's a strange image, right? Fighting for peace. We often think of peace in terms of neutrality, kind of, I'll leave you alone and you leave me alone and hey, we're at peace. That's peace. Uh, But that's not at all what the author means here. Uh, Living at peace is active and it's it's otherworldly. It's something that doesn't come naturally to people. Uh, You see, when Jesus came and the church began, it was the first time in history that people from different cultures and religions and different, different values and ethnicities, it was the first time in history that men and women and rich and poor and slave and free and Jew and Gentile, people from every walk of life begin to gather, gather together to worship on purpose. To share meals together, to serve one another. And that kind of diversity was a brand new thing in the ancient world. It still kind of is today. Fight for peace, the author tells them, because peace like that isn't just getting along. Peace that transcends gender bias and bigotry and prejudice. Peace that accepts people because they follow the same Lord, not because they follow the same political party or are from the same socioeconomic status as you or because they like the same things that I do. That kind of peace must be fought for. Because it isn't just the absence of conflict, it's the presence of love, even for the people that are hard for you to love. Sometimes we think we have peace, but what we really have is a social club. We surround ourselves with people that we think are easy to get along with. And when someone hurts us in church or or they disappoint us, uh, we bail. We abandon the relationship. We avoid that person. We find new friends or we find another church. It's, It's not that hard. Now, these Christians that the author of Hebrews is talking to, they didn't didn't have that luxury. They didn't have a social club they could choose. There was one church in town. It was like they looked around the living room, and it was, that's it. This is the church. (laughs) They only had each other, and they didn't choose each other. God chose them. That's the peace we're talking about. And there's a peace possible in that space that only Jesus can do. Because everyone here, not just the people who are like us, but everyone here is so loved, God was willing to die for them. There's no room in this place for insecurity, for there's no room to leave anyone out for exclusion, because we are loved that much. On the other hand, everyone here, not just the people we struggle with, but everyone here is so broken, is so sinful, Jesus had to die to rescue them. There's no room in this place for arrogance, for pride, for self-righteousness, or for unforgiveness. And we have to fight to remember this, or peace becomes impossible. Someone will show up here that you don't want to love, and someone will show up here that will disappoint you. It's going to happen. It hasn't already. But God loved us even though we disappointed him. (laughs) And that is how peace with him is possible. If Jesus had to die to make peace possible with God for us, surely we'll have to fight for peace with one another. It goes hand in hand. Peace doesn't just happen, it has to be fought for, and I cannot do it alone. So are you fighting for our peace here at Christ Community? Do you complain or do you build up? Are you self-righteous or self-forgetful? Are you judgmental or are you grace-filled? Will you quickly leave when things get tough or will you stay and work together? Are you a consumer or a contributor? My faith needs you to fight for peace. And this is going to make me sound really nerdy, but like more than usual, but here goes. Um, there's a part in, a, in the book, The Fellowship of the Ring, 
Um, yeah, yeah. When uh, the, it gets worse, when the good elves and the and the good dwarves joined, they joined together to fight against the Dark Lord, the, the antagonist of the the book. And uh, in the universe of the book, if you're familiar with it at all, dwarves and, and elves don't like each other. Uh, they're they're not quite enemies, but they're pretty close. Uh, but they you know they join together for this moment because here's something finally worth fighting against together. But it doesn't take long in this story for, for conflict to build, and, and peace is very difficult. And uh, one of the wiser uh, dwarves, he's, he's fighting for peace, he cries out uh, this quote, Indeed, in nothing is the power of the Dark Lord more clearly shown than in the estrangement that divides all those who still oppose him. And uh, I put that up here, it's a little tricky, but Tolkien is, is so brilliant here because God delights in our peace, but our enemy delights in our disunity. For it is remarkable when you see people who have no business together loving one another anyway. There's something profound about that. It's a battle for sure, it is, but it produces a peace worth fighting for. So will you fight for my faith? Will you fight for our peace together? But that's not all the author says we need to fight for. Uh, peace isn't enough. Uh, we must also fight for holiness. Is the, the next big idea in that sentence, fight for holiness. And literally, holiness means set apart. It's those who are in Christ uh, have been set apart for him is kind of the idea. It's, it's the idea of wholeness, uh, the, the being made complete, of being made to live the life we were designed to live in the first place. And so the author says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And if you want to see Jesus, holiness is a prerequisite. Now, thankfully, uh, because of what Jesus has done, and this has been the argument of the whole book, uh, those who have faith in him are declared holy. Jesus says over your, if you're a Christian, God looks at you right now and he calls you holy. Now I get it, you look around the room and you're like, is holy the first word that comes to mind? Um, right, I get, I, 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 yes, yes. But God knows we have a long way to go. So even, even though he calls us holy, we're also commanded to fight for it. And uh, this is, there's a fancy word for this, to become holy, it's called sanctification. It's the process of becoming like Christ. And this is why the Bible always talks about the church. The church is always being sanctified, which is why the Bible always talks about the church. The group of people declared holy by Jesus, we are always called his body. His body. Because the more we grow in holiness, the more we actually become like him. We become his physical presence in the world. So we should actually get glimpses of him in one another, is the idea. We should see Jesus in one another. And the way we live paints a picture of Jesus. Uh, your neighbors need to see that picture, your friends, your kids, your church, and we need to see him here. I need your holiness, your roommate needs it, your coworkers, your classmates need it. You might be the best representation of Jesus some people ever get. And it's a sobering thought, but it's true. And one of the best pieces of advice I ever got in seminary uh, was this. He said, the greatest need of your church Andrew, is your own personal holiness. And uh, that's not just true for pastors. That's for everyone here. It's true of all of us. And you know, I've recently had several conversations with people here at church that I, I, I did not want to have. Um, they, didn't, they didn't do anything wrong. It wasn't, it wasn't on them. But I knew what I was going to say was going to disappoint these people. It wasn't what they wanted to hear. And you know, if you've ever had a day like that, you're, you're dreading this conversation all day long. Um, and every time this week, the holy grace of people in those conversations just blew me away. 
even when I was letting them down. Just hearing the words, it's okay, I'm still with you. We're on the same team. It was, it was this tangible reminder that Jesus is here with us and it was so good for my faith. And I walked away wondering, do people see Jesus in me like I just saw in them? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What, what would your family say to that question? Would they say yes? We see Jesus in you, your closest friends, your spouse, your, your community group. Are there people in your life who can tell you when, when they don't see Jesus in you? Is there anyone in your life who has permission to do that? That have permission to, get, to fight for your holiness and to confront you and be honest with you? Is there anyone in church right now where you know it's your mission to keep them holy? It's your mission to do that. To fight for their holiness because they need you to endure. They aren't going to make it if you aren't fighting for good things for them. Things like peace and their peace and their holiness. And, and they aren't going to make it if you aren't watching out for bad things for them. If you're not protecting them, even from themselves. And I need your faith to fight for mine. And I also need your faith to watch out for mine. And this is where the author goes next. And specifically, there are, there are kind of two things he mentions to watch out for in, in, in one another's faith. And the first is, I need you to watch out for, my, for complacency in my life. I need you to watch out for complacency in my life. And, and you see this in verse 15. He says, See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Now, some of you are probably wondering, where does complacency come in from that verse? Well, it's a little tricky. Um, if you're reading the ESV, you'll notice that the phrase root of bitterness is in quotes. And they're trying to clue you in. The author is actually quoting a whole story from the Old Testament that he's just, he's just alluding to. And it's actually from Deuteronomy 29, where Moses says this. He says, Beware lest there be among you a man or woman whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be, be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the word of this sworn covenant, blesses himself and his heart saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. And you see, this, this passage is a warning about the person, this root of bitterness person, who even in, in great sin, even if they're cheating on their spouse or stealing at work or they're caught in a terrible addiction, still says to himself, still, still says to herself, I'm okay. I'm okay. No big deal. These are bitter-tasting people. You need to watch out for those people and watch out for that attitude in yourself, that attitude that ignores your blind spots, that never asks for help. Beware of people who think they're okay, who think they've got it all figured out. That is the definition of complacency. And everything around us, right, in our, in our world says, you're, you're okay, it's no big deal, don't worry about it. And we assume God's grace. It's very easy to do. And when you assume it, you belittle it, God's grace. And if you belittle his grace long enough, you'll begin to believe you don't actually need it anymore. And that's a very bitter-tasting person who gets to that point. And this attitude in, in a community of faith is, is a disease. It is highly contagious. By quoting the Old Testament here, the author's reminding us that that's the disease that took down the Israelites. A whole generation of them were destroyed by this complacency in the wilderness. And he doesn't want to see the church make the same mistake. So, so are we on the lookout for contagious complacency in ourselves and in, and in others around us? And one of the most 
dangerous places you can be in your faith is when you think you're either immune to God's judgment or that you aren't capable of making incredible mistakes that will destroy your life. One of the chief characteristics of a root of bitterness is the attitude that I don't need help because I'd never do that. I'd never do that. I'd never have an affair. I'd never cheat on a test. I'd never steal someone else's work. I'd never do that, ever. If you believe that, then I would, I would argue you don't know yourself very well. Another characteristic is a fierce independence that never lets anyone else be right or call you out on something. If you find in your regular experience of life that you're never wrong and that other people are the source of all your problems, you need to watch out. So take steps right now to watch out for that kind of complacency. If this is a real struggle for you, this is what I'm describing here, meditate on your character flaws. Of course, do it uh, remembering that God knows all that about you. He knows everything about you. He loved you anyway, and he died for you anyway. But don't ignore how weak and feeble and flawed you really are. You are darker and more sinful than you can possibly know. You don't even know. You're capable of anything if not for God's grace. That's true for each one of us. And get other people in your life who have permission to get in your face. It will not feel good but it can save an entire church. A root of bitterness can take down a whole community of people. It really can. The whole church can become defiled. That's what the author says. This isn't just your faith at stake. It's mine. It's the person next to you. It's your family. It's your children. We need your faith. So watch out for complacency and let, uh, let others help you. That's number one. Number two, the second thing we need to watch out for from this text is, is foolish indulgence, is the, the phrase we came up with, foolish indulgence. And I need you to watch out for foolish indulgence in my life. And you see this in verses 16 and 17. He says, See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. Now Esau, if you're unfamiliar, he's a character in the Old Testament. And there's actually no explicit story of him being sexually immoral in the Old Testament. Um, So lots of people think that the author is using a Greek word here, it's the word pornos, means adulterous, um, to mean all kinds of appetites that we're susceptible to, uh, that we might indulge in and abandon God. Sex is obviously one of those. Greed is another, power, comfort, whatever, whatever it is. And he uses the story of Esau to illustrate the point. So here, here it is. Jacob and Esau were brothers. They were twins. They were Abraham's grandsons. And Esau was born first, but Jacob, the younger one, would go on to, to be the father of the nation of Israel, and, which is confusing because if, when you, in, in a culture, uh, in ancient Israel, the firstborn always received special treatment, the firstborn, the oldest, uh, they receive the inheritance, the blessing. So how, how does Jacob end up with those things as the younger of the two? Well, that's the story. You can read the, the unabridged version in, in Genesis 25. But here's the story. So one day, Esau was out hunting, and Jacob was inside cooking. And Esau bursts in. He's, he's exhausted. He's been outside all day. He's famished. He says, I'm dying of hunger. Can I have some of the soup that you're making, Jacob? And Jacob says, no soup for you. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. Uh, I've been waiting all week to do that, so thank you. Um, He says, no, he says, I'll I'll tell you what. Here's what Jacob said, I'll I'll tell you what. 
I'll trade you some soup for your birthright. I will give you a bowl of this yummy stew, and all you need to give me in return is all of your rights as a firstborn. And Esau, for whatever reason, says, well, whatever, that sounds fine. And so that's exactly what happens. He trades his, something of immense, lasting value for something so insignificant in the long term, but so immediately satisfying in the moment and gratifying. And that's the point. All of us are like Esau, or at least we have the potential to be foolishly indulgent. We're all capable of trading it in for something that stupid. And again, if, if you disagree, watch out. It's the person who thinks too highly of themselves that is in the most danger. And, and every one of us has something. There's something that we would consider trading it all in for. There's something. We do. So, I mean, what is it for you? Seriously, if someone sat down right now across from you, what would it take for you to trade in your spiritual birthright? What would it take? What would it take to get your faith in obedience? I bet you we would all have a breaking point at some point. How about success or money or health or or safety for your kids? Or pleasure or happiness or leisure or beauty or talent or acclaim? Now maybe we wouldn't sell it all in one fell swoop like Esau did. We'd just do it one bad decision at a time. It's usually how it works. You don't need to eat the whole bowl of soup. You just take one bite and then another and then another. And on your own, if we're left on our own, we're going to choose the soup. You need God's grace and you need a community of people to save you from your appetites or they'll destroy you. There's a story in the Odyssey where Odysseus, he's the hero of the story, he he illustrates the point here. He's on a ship uh, trying to get home. That's really the whole plot. He's trying to get home. and He and his crew go through all kinds of crazy trials to make it back home. And and at one point, they they need to pass by a group of sirens on the rocks. And sirens in ancient mythology, they were creatures with such beautiful voices that when people heard them, they were irresistible. They were drawn to them. Um, so they would sing to passing ships, these sirens, and the captain of the ship would steer the boat, the boat toward the voices. And uh, they, would, uh, they would crash into the rocks and everybody would die. So Odysseus, he's been warned about this. He knows about this. He has his men stuff their ears with wax. And he has them tie him to the mast so that no matter what, he cannot give in to the temptation as they pass by. So you see that I, I need your faith to tie me to the mast sometimes. I need your faith to tie me to the mast. You may never be strong enough to resist something, at least this side of heaven. You, you need a community to save you, to protect you from yourself, from trading it all in and crashing your faith on the rocks. I need your faith. Or I will forget that Jesus is true and better. I'll forget who I really am and what life is really about. I'll lose sight of the goal. I'll be overwhelmed by the hard stuff and ignore the good stuff. But here's where we have hope. At the end of the day, this community is only as strong as the one who made it. And the person who made this community, literally, the person who made this church right here, he died and rose again. His victory is already our victory. His birthright is now our birthright. Our strength is his strength. And one of the primary ways he gives us his strength is through each other. I was reading a book this week that taught me something fascinating about redwood trees. Have you ever seen the redwood forest in California? Anybody been there? It's beautiful, yeah. It's one of the most beautiful things in the world, these trees. They're just incredible. 
and uh, they're over 300 feet tall, many of them, and thousands of years old. It's, cr- it's incredible. And uh, some of these trees were actually alive at the time the author gave this sermon to the, to the congregation, this Hebrews, this book of Hebrews. And I used to think that the reason these trees lasted so long, and maybe you did too, is that the depth was the depth of their roots. These trees must have incredibly deep roots if they make it this long. I, but that's not true. Compared to their size, their roots are quite shallow. They're only 6 to 12 feet deep, which for a 300-foot tree is nothing. Six feet of roots is nothing. So how does a 300-foot tree stand for 2,000 years? Well, it's because their roots look like this. They're all intertwined under the ground, just under the ground, interconnected. It's as if the trees are holding on to one another, keeping each other strong, holding each other up. That's what God intends for his family. None of us is particularly strong on our own. Honestly, I'm pretty weak. But together, that's something else. The church is one of the only things that's as old as these redwoods. Friends, this is why we're here. This is why we gather. Why we've done so for thousands of years. Why we'll continue to do so until Jesus returns. And I want to make it. I want to endure And I have no illusions about it. I need your faith. And you need mine, covered in the grace and victory of Jesus. Let's pray to him now. Father, we do thank you for the gift of your church. So often, we think it's an obstacle to our faith or an obstacle to our witness, but it is is an integral part of how we know you and how we live this life you've called us to live. So God, by your spirit, give us peace. Give us holiness. Protect us from complacency. Protect us from indulgence. And use these people in all of our lives to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.